welcome to another episode of Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. November was a big month for the show as we officially reached 100 episodes on the podcast and added new topics from experts in the field. In case you missed an episode or were on the fence about listening to the full thing, check out these clips from November's episodes to see if you might want to go back and listen to it in its entirety. All right, here we go. First in November, Heather and I sat down to celebrate the show's 100th episode. We explored why the show came to be, answered questions submitted by you, and gave a sneak peek into the future of the show. Okay. Question number four, Lori Evans Photography. This is a good question. Well, they've all been good questions, but I like this one. If you could relive only one wildlife encounter or experience, what would it be and what emotion did it evoke? This is a great question. This mm-hmm. is, it's this, like a fun one to answer, you know? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. it made me really reflect. And really think about, because I've been so blessed now with just the career I've chosen in my life to see a lot of incredible things. And honestly, while it's not the most sexy or crazy or anything, I think the deciding I would love to go back and do again is the first time I saw a wild tiger. Because that's pretty sexy. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm like, you shut up. That's pretty sexy. Well, tire is awesome. Okay. <laughs> okay, maybe you're okay. You're right. You're totally right. I thought you were going to say like skunk or something like totally not sexy, right? But cool. Still cool nonetheless. But <laughs> they do have a couple of sightings I do want to mention after this. But, but that, that, that tiger sighting meant so much to me. It meant, more than just seeing that tiger. So the story behind this sighting is it was my third Earth expedition. So it was my my final trip that I had made with my graduate program. And then my boss now, who I work for, I actually partnered with him. I didn't work for him at the time. This was 2017. With creating a post-research safari in India with his partners. And so this is the worst time of the year to go see tigers. Like you just, like we weren't supposed to see anything. Like it just, if you happen to just count your blessings and go buy a lottery ticket, because this is not the time of year to go see tigers. But you know, it was like, we're here in India. It's, in, it's so long to get there. Let's go to a couple parks and see what we can find. And um, so we were in the Southern part of India and it was Nagarhole National Park. And our Tiger Reserve, Tiger Valley to Tiger Reserve, I'm sorry. And it was our first game drive. And we just came around this bend and onto this water hole. And right there, for the first time ever in my life, was a tiger. And I almost broke down in tears because everything that I had been striving for all of my life, finally in that moment, like I finally saw a tiger in the wild, like everything I'd done. My entire master's, online, all of my undergrad, everything had culminated into this moment where I'm actually seeing what I was trying so hard to protect finally in the wild. 
And we were with that cat for like 45 minutes because it was, it just eaten. It was at its watering hole. It did not care. It was just, it was just such a cat. <laughs> and I mean, people obviously don't know that I actually have a lot of tattoos. I'm pretty tatted up, which a lot of that surprises a lot of people, which can't judge a book by its cover. But one of my, one of my tattoos is, is actually a beautiful tiger. And so, and I got that when I graduated undergrad as like one of my one of the things closest in my heart that I want to that I want to say that I want to spend the rest of my life protecting and then to see it in the wild for the first time like oh it was so, just not so awesome like how amazing was that I bet just- oh my gosh I really literally might cry. but yeah so I think that 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 moment just because it meant so much personally and so like a couple of my sexier sightings that I will say that also meant a lot. And these are actually on the same trip. So one was in the Makarikari salt pans, which is in Botswana. So it's outside the Kalahari. And I was with this beautiful desert adapted lioness. And she is the biggest freaking lion I've ever seen in my life. She was massive. The locals called her big head for perspective. <laughs> She was such a beast that it was literally her and her three cubs and her cubs were as big as a lot of the other lions that I had seen across like Eastern Africa or something like that. So she was beautiful. And then on that night, we actually got to see her teaching her cubs how to hunt a wildebeest. Oh, how? Oh, oh my gosh. I'm jealous. That sounds amazing. It was it was. Yeah. It was phenomenal just watching all the chaos and and her showing them how to stalk and then letting them try and and everything, just watching how they they communicate with each other, you know, which is so different than what we do. So just watching this beautiful behavior was just incredible. And then at towards the end of that trip, so I was in a different part of Botswana. Um and I got to be with a wild dog pack. And uh, I know you told me about that. That sounds so magical. Yes, yes. Yeah. This particular pack, we were with them all evening. It was 11 adults and 14 puppies. And oh, how cool. So many puppies. And then it was time to hunt. And so for two and a half hours, we were with them as they were just going through the bush, chasing everything down. And then they did eventually, they, they, they were relentless. Like wild dogs are relentless. Like they didn't stop until they took something down. So they took down an Impala. And yeah, it was, it was, that was absolutely incredible. And then after eating for a while, they called the puppies and we were there and like all the puppies came tramping through like the big grass and everything. So that was just, and then also too, like being like a predator specialist, like to see these interactions, to see these wild dogs, like that is so, so special. So to spend an entire evening with them was phenomenal. And I would love to, I would love to relive that. I've, I've actually yeah. posted like all of the, of the uh, puppy videos. And so have more, I should probably post them more. Yeah, we, we should definitely post them. That, that's, that's so cool. I bet just watching them interact and, and communicate with each other and work together was just so amazing. I mean, I've seen videos of it in documentaries, but to actually see it in person would be amazing. Girl, we're going to, because you're with me now. So guess what? <laughs> you're going to see all the things. But okay, so those were all of the questions. Now, I want 
to formally introduce Heather, because this is the first time your voice has been on the show, even though now for many episodes, you have had a very big hand in. So tell everybody, what is your background and why are you doing conservation now? Okay. (laughs) Well, so I worked in the video game industry for 20 plus years as a sound designer, a composer, an audio director. Next, we sat down with Sasha Dench, co-founder of Conservation Without Borders and mastermind behind the Flight of the Swans and Flight of the Osprey expeditions. Wow, that's absolutely incredible. And so what issues were really brought to light at the end of your 11 country journey. So I guess what's the, since the film has already been out, like what was the conclusion that, that came from it? And did it have like a, the response you were expecting? Just like, yeah. How did it turn out for you? I guess, so I guess the film is one of the tools from it. During the expedition itself, we were filming and photographing things along the way and sharing it through social media. So we ended up with about almost 2,000 different pieces of media coverage uh, along the way. And those were incredible because certainly the ones that were, when it was local media coverage, people would hear that we were, I was on my way or that the team were on their way. Mm. And they would come out to try and see us, to try and share stories. And I would get on social media and tell us, well, my gran always used to like have swans brought home or mm, so-and-so says we don't eat this because of that or the birds are too tough. It basically got lots of people talking before we got there, which was, and that'd be really handy. But yeah, the film was made right at the time. We have actually just re-edited a film, which I think has a lot more kind of heart and more about the people we met along the way in it. So that is is being entered into film festivals at, at the moment. But what were the key things that were brought to light? I guess there were quite a few. For me personally, the thing that I was very strong was A, the I got to see many very real examples of climate change impacting species, but also stories from real humans up in the Arctic. It goes that such an extreme environment, they are feeling climate change way, way stronger than many of the, the rest of us are. And so seeing how the very real examples of that, so for example, with the, the swans, you can see how the Arctic is changing fast. So what was flat tundra, getting more and more bigger trees there. So their landscape is actually changing really fast. It's actually making the area that they're suitable for them to breed in smaller and smaller. That was really interesting, looking at historical weather patterns and seeing actually that the storms that the young birds and the adults are actually facing now are getting more and more challenging for them. The weather patterns are much more unpredictable and it's a, it's a long, exhausting journey for them. Also looking at how many of the wetlands have disappeared, even in the last 30 years. So I'm in my 40s, but yes, in my lifetime vast number of wetlands have disappeared. So yeah, looking at just how many wetlands have disappeared right across Europe in the time that in boy in my lifetime. So for example, you know, just since the 70s, there haven't been enough wetlands for the birds to feed on. They've had to be going out and actually using the wetland areas to roost on still. They still need to sleep where they are away from predators. So floating in the middle of the wall, but there aren't enough. They have to go out and feed on waste crops and things at the end of at the end of harvesting. So they're looking for waste crops everywhere. So looking at how fast cropping plans, what people grow where is changing with climate change. That that change across Europe also means that the birds, rather than every year having an idea that when they get to this wetland, they'll be able to go to these places to find waste crops to feed on. They're now having to do a lot more. They arrive in a new place after maybe doing, you know, a thousand kilometer journey. 
And actually, they've got to send scouts out to try and find where can we feed around here. So there's just more and more effort required just to do the migration. And then in terms of the people, yeah, for the people of the Arctic, hearing them, I, I once asked a group, what would you say to, to people who are uh, cynical of climate change, said to people back home, to them, and they roll around, rolled around laughing, saying, God, you're supposed to be the highly educated people. How can you not see that climate change is real? Because for them, it's the Arctic tundra kind of collapsing. It's the permafrost not being so high. So actually the surface level doesn't actually freeze as much as it would. And for them, that's their freezers. They've got holes dug at various places throughout the Arctic where they normally put their, their food, the reindeer meat or whatever to keep it cool. Uh, for them, it's the tundra not freezing as much. So actually the food doesn't stay cold and their food, well, it's the edges of the tundra islands and things collapsing because it's no longer frozen. It is, there's big oil pipelines run across many parts of the Russian Arctic from their oil excavation activities. And those oil pipelines rest, they sit off the ground on pillars. And it's a big concern for them is that when parts of the tundra collapse because of the, it's no longer frozen anymore, the the supports those pipelines collapse and they break and you get oil spills across the tundra landscape, which is where they their reindeer need to feed. That happens frequently. And so seeing all those sorts of things where I understood climate change as a concept, something that was real, seeing very tangible, tangible examples of climate change affecting the animals, but also people was a, was a very powerful thing for me. It's another one of those unintended consequences that come from us trying to deal with climate change is the, the impact of power lines. So all across Europe, as we've realized that we need to be moving to renewable energies, more and more wind turbines are being put up all throughout Eastern Europe. Now for that power to get from those wind turbines across to the Baltic and elsewhere, power lines are being put in place and they're above, above ground power lines right across towards the Baltic Sea. And that's basically lines that go right across the birds migration route it's not just the mm. buick swans it's many other birds and they're at a certain height and you would think well, what are the chances that birds actually fly at that particular height when you're on the autumn migration as i saw myself trying to follow them in a paramotor quite often you get low cloud cover and that low cloud cover oh. forces you to fly at quite a low height um, and as a human i can look out for the poles basically between the lines now a bird is not going to know to do that and you might also think, surely they can see some of the power lines. And I think there's one thing, it's one thing for us to try and look at power lines from below, and then you see a dark line against the sky. But if you're at the height of the power lines or just above them, against a dark ground, uh, whether it's brown fields or green fields or whatever, they are absolutely impossible to see. So that was a bit of a realization for me to see just how, just how big an impact all those power lines could be on the birds and why so many of them hit power lines because they're kind of forced into that, forced into flying at that, approximately that height on a regular basis. So I guess there were, there were a lot of issues that were highlighted, but a key thing for me was that the areas where I could see solutions being put into place and solutions that we wanted to promote, it was normally an individual, possibly someone on their own, possibly someone in an NGO who'd stood up and just said, look, I'm going to tackle this, even if it seems big, even if I think Power companies won't listen to me. Hunters won't listen to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a go. It's somebody that just was brave enough to step up and do something about it, even if they weren't a biologist, even if they had no background in the issue, they had passion, they had an idea for a solution, and they were bold enough to go and have a go. 
Lastly, in November, we sat down with Daniel Sheldon, CEO of the Hurtigurten Group, to discuss sustainable cruising. So, like, like I mentioned before, I am from conservation tourism, but I don't know as much about sustainable tourism on ships. So what are some other big projects that you've all tackled? Like, how do you separate yourself from the pack on actually leading sustainable cruises? Just please, like, just spew all the awesome. Oh, yeah. Done. Uh, I will. I will. Let's start with tech. Uh, we built the world's first battery-powered cruise ship. Mm. Uh, and we took inspiration from the car industry uh, on electric cars. We took uh, inspiration from uh, the Norwegian transportation sector that's been heavily electrified over the years. Uh, and we wanted to bring this to our, our expedition ships. And we built uh, the Royal Amundsen and the Fitjof Nansen, uh, the world's first battery hybrid powered cruise ships. We're retrofitting battery technology to our older vessels. So we're not saying, okay, this is only going to come when we build a new ship. We're also doing it in our older vessels. And we've, um, we're, we're cutting significant amount of emissions by, by introducing new technology to our fleet. And we also made an ambition, which is, which is not going to be just a dream project. We're actually putting science behind a project now to have the first zero emission ship by 2030. Wow. It is not possible right now, but with technology development um, and the, the pre-project that we just finished with, we certainly believe that we will be able to exercise this by, by 2030. Uh, we made some conscious decisions. We used no heavy fuel oil, you know, this syrupy, toxic waste that fuels most of the world's cruise ships. Uh, we're actually advocating a ban on heavy fuel oil in the areas that we say. As I mentioned, we removed single-use plastic. We're very focused on creating positive value in communities we, we, we sail to, buying locally, hiring locally. We don't buy frozen food in a turnaround port way off where we sail. We actually source locally fresh food as much as we possibly can. We're supporting science. So we use our ships as a platform for scientists. We use our guests um, as citizen scientists collecting data. And actually, uh, our ships have a consecutive series of data points on the water temperature on the Norwegian coast going back to the 1930s, uh, which scientists can, can get access to. Uh, we want to create climate ambassadors of our guests. So when they return from these beautiful areas we sail to, they know more about them and they also know what is creating the challenges in these areas and how fragile they are. And lastly, uh, we also run land-based businesses in one of them on, on Svalbard, which is as close as you can get to the North Pole. Uh, it's the northernmost city on the planet, Longyearbyen. We have hotels, restaurants, shops, tour operation. We, we had, we, we've, on this journey, we've had to overcome a lot of challenges. So Longyearbyen, beautiful place, uh, is covered by coal. And then you're going to introduce new technology in a place that is covered by coal. And we can change that because that's the government's decision. We wanted to introduce the world's first battery snowmobiles, oh, electric snowmobiles. Awesome. Oh, right. But that's not, that's not doing any good if they're covered on coal. Right. So, so our team decided to, to overcome this problem and they, um, they set up a windmill and they put up a solar panels. And, and they had to do both because uh, Longyearbyen, it's pitch dark there mm. in November, December, January, February, and into March. And from mid-April, there is midnight sun. 
but the combination of a windmill and solar panels is no powering over electric snowmobiles on Svalbard. So it is all sorts of things across over over universe where over over people really really make a fantastic contribution to make us uh, as environmentally friendly as possible. But but we we aren't our ships don't run on air yet. So so we're using fuel, but we have to reduce the amount of it as much as possible, and we have to bridge the gap towards us becoming zero emissions. Mm. Oh my gosh. I want one of those snowmobiles so bad. It is, it is really cool to be on this, this snowmobiles. And we're introducing a lot of other new technologies as well, together with, with, with big companies around the world that supplies technology. We're testing new technology on bolts and, uh, and other things we have up there to, to be in the forefront of new technology. Oh my gosh. So where I'm at now, so before we started chatting, I was just telling Daniel where I'm located and I'm right outside of Rocky Mountain National Park now. And the town I'm in, they like claim themselves as like the snowmobile capital of Colorado. You should try getting an electric snowmobile. It's a fantastic experience. And that is it. A snapshot of November's wide ranging episodes. Hopefully one of the clips piqued your interest enough to go back and listen to the full episode. I know we'll sure be happy if you did. As always, we want to thank you for being a part of the Rewatology community. If you would like to support the show in other creative ways, there are several options to do so. First, some zero-cost ways to support the show, including subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewatology newsletter at the website, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support the show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, consider making a monetary donation at Rewatology.com or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewatology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. I'd also like to extend a special thanks to Heather Valley, the show's audio and video producer, for making the show sound and look awesome, and Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to rewildology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.